Hey, HDC, how's it going? Good to see you. Good to get to be with you tonight. Uh, my name's Jackson. I'm our creative minister here. And uh, man, it is so fun to get to be here, uh, to speak to you guys, hopefully to encourage you from God's word and to get to wrap up uh, what I think has been a great series. It's been a really fun summer series for us to just kind of be, we've been kind of cruising through Proverbs. We haven't been going chapter by chapter, but the idea is, is that Proverbs was written by the wisest guy to ever live. And so we're looking for that theme of wisdom across a bunch of different topics. What does wisdom have to say about X? And uh, man, it has been such an encouraging series for those of us who want to live a wise life. And biblical wisdom is, the, the whole idea is simply this. It's understanding that if God created the world, then there is a cadence, there is a rhythm, there is a way the world works. And if you get in line with that, life generally goes well for you. The book of Proverbs is all about this idea of the good life. And if you follow the things in Proverbs, it will lead you to this idea of the good life. I mean, who in here, who online doesn't wanna live a good life? We want a good life. And we've gotta remember though that Proverbs, as we've heard time and time again in this series, is not a list of promises, but a list of probabilities. These are things that are likely to happen if you are to live in accordance with wisdom. But if you look at the greater whole of, of wisdom literature, which is not just Proverbs, but also Ecclesiastes and Job, you realize that it gets a little bit more complicated. Proverbs kind of deals in the black and the white, and then Job and Ecclesiastes get a little bit more into the gray. But what sits at the center of all three of these books is this idea of the fear of the Lord. We talked about that at the beginning of our series, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that sounds like kind of a maybe crazy theological idea to fear the Lord, but it is simply just to prioritize him. It's like this, if, if when you unload the dishwasher, you're, you're stacking dishes so that you can do it faster. At least I am. It's like this balancing act, right? Of like how many things so that you can do it quicker. But the one thing that you're not gonna mess around with, the one thing that you're never gonna stack in that pile is the butcher knife because you don't want that thing sliding off a plate, right? You understand just how dangerous a butcher knife can be. So a butcher knife gets its own hand, it's pointed down and you walk it very cautiously over to the knife block because you understand what a butcher knife is capable of. And in that respect, you have a healthy fear of a butcher knife. In the same way, to fear the Lord is simply just to prioritize him above other things, understanding that there is a greater level of power and importance to who he is than anything else. So that's this idea, real plain, real simple, of what it looks like to fear the Lord. And specifically tonight, we're gonna look at what it looks like to fear the Lord in the context of sexuality and temptation. What does it look like to step in line with God's rhythm, God's cadence, when it comes to the topic of sexuality and temptation? And I'll summarize it here for you just real briefly. Proverbs continuously will tell you as you read through the book that sexuality is extremely powerful. And because sexuality is so powerful, there is a respect that you treat it with that you don't go near any deviation from God's design for sexuality. The good news tonight is God designed sexuality. 
The bad news for us is that sexuality has been greatly distorted in our world. And so we need to cling to God's word to see the intended purpose of sexuality so that we can cling and adhere to that and be cautious in all other areas. And if you're curious about, well, what would a deviation outside of God's design for sexuality even be or look like? Uh, I just point you really quickly to our statement of faith as a church. You could find it on our website. And I pulled out for you an excerpt from it uh, specifically related to sexuality. It's there in your notes, but I'll read it for you as well. It says this, we believe that marriage, although legally recognized by the state, has already been established by God to provide a healthy and safe environment for personal and spiritual growth. We believe that the Bible defines marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman and is the only context for biblical sexual expression. That's our statement of faith as a church uh, that you would know that's what, by the way, that's not us saying like, ah, we threw a dart at it and this is what we think it, it is. That's us saying, this is what God's word says. And when you hop in with us as a church, we want you to know that this is what we believe that God's word says and we're gonna teach that time and time again. And so real clearly, any deviation outside of that would be sexuality outside of God's design which would look like things like sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend, living together before marriage, down to homosexuality, and on the list goes, pornography would be a deviation from God's design for sexuality. And I don't list that to tell you what we're against, but I wanna be super clear to be helpful to you about what God's word says the intended purpose of sexuality is. Because I know that this is a topic that our culture is loud about. And so it is important for us to be really clear about what God's word says about it. And it's not because what we're against, it's because God has designed sexuality with a purpose and intention that is so good. And so here's kind of my summary for you. I've got it there uh, in your notes, is that biblical wisdom stance on sexuality is to confidently keep it in God's ordained context and to cautiously avoid any deviation at all cost in respect for its power, both for good and for evil. Naturally, Proverbs gives a lot of lip service to the idea of sexuality because it has so much potential for good and it has so much potential for evil in your life. And so it is important that we confidently keep it in the category that God has designed it for and that we cautiously run from any deviation outside of God's design. Here's the really tricky thing with that sexual ethic though, is that you and I don't kind of pique our interest. When you tell us not to do something, it just became 10 times more interesting, right? The moment you say, don't do this, that's why it's not like a fun one to teach on because it's a lot of don'ts. And the moment we hear don't, there's something within us that's like, ah, oh, but I'd like to know, right? I grew up going to Disneyland a good amount and one of the things that we had to do every time we'd go to Disneyland is we had to ride the Indiana Jones ride. It was just like a mandatory, a must. Uh, it was my favorite ride. My room as a kid was Indiana Jones themed, okay? Uh, didn't take off into a career in archeology span though, so I don't know what went wrong there, but I was a big fan of Indiana Jones growing up. And it was always a must for me to hit that ride. And if you've ever been on the ride, if not, I guess, spoiler alert, I mean, the ride's been out longer than I've been alive, so you should have made it there. Um, 
If you've been on the ride though, you might not have even noticed what happens at the beginning of the ride, but I couldn't help but notice it because of who my dad is. So what would happen is, is you get kind of brought into this Jeep and if you've ever paid attention to the ride, you got your guy Sala on there and he's like talking to you on the radio as you're going through the ride and you turn this corner and there's this big like stone face and he says over the intercom, like, just be careful, don't look into the eyes. And then as you get closer and closer and closer, Sala comes on more panicked. And he's like, what did you do? Somebody looked into the eyes. And you probably don't even notice this because you're just getting ready for the ride to go. This is all just the preamble of the story. But every time I would go on that ride as a kid and Sala would say, who looked into the eyes? My dad would yell, Jackson! And then the whole car looks back at me like it's my fault. And I'm just sitting there like, you've got to be kidding me. Every single time we ride Indiana Jones and then the rest of the ride, he's just yelling at me for looking into the eyes and getting us into all of this trouble and like just making fun of me the whole time. And the whole ride is like, it was my fault basically, right? Like just, he's just picking on me. But it's such a great premise for a ride because at the end of the day, you and I are all, every, every single car that goes through that ride, the moment they say, don't look into the eyes, somebody in that car is going to look into the eyes because it just comes with the territory. The moment you say don't, it's just that sin nature in us. It's like, I'd kind of like to though. I'd kind of like to have a taste. I'd kind of like to know. I just want to go see for myself. And here's the crazy thing about biblical wisdom is that wise people don't need to go see for themselves. Wise people hear don't from God and they're content to know no other way than his. They hear don't go that way and they turn the other way. That is a totally different way to live than many of us live, where when we hear don't, our hearts are enticed and we say, I'd kind of like to go check it out. Biblical wisdom is content to be ignorant about every other way but God's way. It's a very narrow-minded approach to life. It's to say, I I don't need to be more open-minded. I don't need to go find truth other places. I have this one single source. It is God and his word, and I am content to know nothing else. And so the question as we delve into what it looks like to pursue wisdom in the area of sexuality and temptation is do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you fear him? Do you prioritize him in your life? Because otherwise, those don'ts are gonna pull at your heart. And at the end of the day, you're gonna go do what you wanna do. But if you trust him, if you fear him, if you prioritize him, then you will take seriously what he and his word have to say. So that's my encouragement to you as we hop in. We're gonna be in Proverbs chapter seven tonight. Little context for you. This is the opening section to Proverbs where Solomon is really clearly writing about a list of different things to his son. And in chapter six, he just told his son, don't ever screw around with adultery. You don't mess around with it. You don't sleep with a woman who's married because it will cost you more than you can pay. That's the message in the back half of chapter six. And then he gets into chapter seven, which is to expound further on the cost of sexual deviation, of sexuality outside of God's design. And Solomon wants to make so, so clear to his son, do not mess around with this stuff because the cost is so high. This is what he has to say here in chapter seven, starting in verse one. He says, my son, 
Keep my words and store up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. That's literally to keep the teaching in the center of your focus. It's like the shiny part of your eye. So keep it that close to your attention. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Solomon says, pay attention to what I have to say, my son. I want you to notice this. It is the teaching of the father that is going to keep his son from the wayward woman, from the adulterous woman. And check this out. Those words literally mean in the Hebrew, wayward and adulterous, kind of a weird translation because they literally mean strange and foreign. So when Solomon's writing it in his language, he's saying, if you keep my words, if you keep the things I'm telling you, it will keep you from the strange and foreign woman. Now, this isn't an ethnic conversation that Solomon's getting into. It's not like Jewish girls only. This woman that he is trying to keep his son from is strange and foreign because she does not prioritize God. She doesn't fear him. She doesn't trust him with the way that she lives her life. She lives it according to her own design, not his. Thus making her a foreigner to the people of God. Thus making her strange to the people of God. This is that kind of idea of being equally yoked. You might've heard that before if you've been around church circles. And that is marrying someone, dating someone who believes in Jesus and is where you are spiritually. And that is so, so important because consistently in God's word, whenever his people start to marry people who worship other gods, they end up worshiping those gods instead. Because there is something so significant about the person that you intertwine your life with that if they don't serve and worship God, it will pull you to worship whatever they worship. It is that important. It is meant to be taken that seriously. And if you're in the room and you're already married to someone who doesn't share in that belief, totally different ballgame if you're married. You've made a lifelong commitment to them, you're in. So now it's about winning them for Christ. But if you are in that pre-marriage state right now, maybe dating somebody that you have no business dating, could I just encourage you to take so seriously, this is not to be messed around with being with someone who is strange and foreign to the people of God. You want someone who fears him. You want someone who trusts him because that will go well for you in the long run. You talk about the good life, that is one of the things that leads to the good life in your future. Don't mess around with it. But notice that the father is saying really kind of important stuff about what he has to say. Pay attention to my words. He talks about it the way other parts of the Old Testament talk about God's law. Bind it on your fingers, write it on your heart. That's how important it is. And so I'm gonna give you a list of do's and don'ts tonight in the theme of the don'ts that pique our interest. My first encouragement to you is a do though. Do talk to your kids about sexuality. Do talk to your kids about sexuality. I want you to notice this that the thing that Solomon, the wisest guy who's ever lived, the thing he is convinced that will keep his son 
from this strange and foreign woman is if, she, is if he clings to his father's teaching. And it's not just the father either. Look at this, back in chapter six when he was talking about adultery, look at this in chapter six, uh, starting in verse 20. My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Look at same language. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this commandment is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and instruction are the way to life. Keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. So notice it's a full court press. It is the father's teaching and the mother's teaching for this child to cling to, for this son to cling to that will keep him from the wayward woman. And can I just encourage you to think about this? Many of us in this room likely, statistically, wish that our parents talked to us more about sexuality. We wish that our parents would have informed more of the things that we were experiencing or had questions about related to sexuality. And can I tell you this, for how uncomfortable it feels to bring this up with your kids, for how uncomfortable it feels to talk about it, our culture is incredibly comfortable. Our culture is incredibly loud, talking to your kids about sexuality. There was a time for us in the church where it was about being defensive. How can we protect our kids from being exposed to the way that the world talks about sexuality? I would argue that the way that the world has moved now is it is not a matter of if your kids are exposed to the world's view of sexuality. It is a matter of when. So it is about time that in your parenting, that for us as a church, we got on the offensive side. We stop just playing defense, just reacting to the impact of the world on our kids in terms of sexuality. But we started getting on the offensive side of the game, started getting proactive in talking about these things with your kids. And if you don't think that I'm being serious in what I have to say or you don't think it's a real problem, uh, there's a group called Barna. They're a Christian group that does uh, research. I've got a few different stats from them for you tonight. The first one is related to kids, young adults, and teens. Um, this is what it says. It says nearly three quarters, that would be 71% of young adults and half of teens say that they come across what they consider to be porn at least once a month, whether they are looking for it or not. That's just being a young adult today. That's just being a teenager today, that they just come across it, whether they're looking for it or not. And this one uh, is, is jarring, if you hadn't realized this. 11 is the average age of a child that is first exposed to porn. And 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. That's the reality. That's the world that we live in. And you could sit and pout about it, and say, oh, it's so unfair that the world is like this. It wasn't like this when I was growing up. You could pout, or you could get on the offensive side of the game, and you could start being proactive with your kid, because if there is nothing for them to cling to, listen to what the wisest guy ever is saying. My son, cling to my teaching about sexuality. And if you just kind of get icked out and uncomfortable to be forward and to talk to your kids about it, what do they have to cling to except for what their friends are telling them, what the internet tells them, what social media tells them, and what pornography tells them? 
We have got to get serious about being on the offensive side. And a couple of resources that I'd like to throw your way. There's one, a book that starts, it's got kind of two different phases. And the first phase starts at the age of three. And it's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. And it's about what to do when exposed to pornography, leading a kid to come and talk to you. Uh, and so I'd encourage you, maybe check out that book if you're like, man, how do we, how do we bring this up? How do we talk about it? And then uh, a resource you've heard before is called Protect Young Eyes uh, that we've talked about before. It's a resource for knowing how to better protect your home internet and things like that. We wanna be partners with you in this. You're not alone. Definitely, your youth ministry is talking about this uh, on a regular basis basis with students, but it's not enough if it's coming from them. They need to hear from you. So if I could encourage you, it's about time that we get proactive, okay? Uh, If we keep going in our passage, now though, Solomon is going to lay out for his son what it would look like to not cling to this teaching. He's going to lay out really clearly the cost of not clinging to what Solomon has to say. In verse six, he says this, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple. I noticed a young man, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. Here's what Solomon lays out. He's looking out of his window. He sees a young man walking by and he identifies this young man as one of the simple. If you were here earlier in our series when Pastor Kurt talked about fools, this guy would fall under the category of the oblivious fool. That word simple is that he has an open door, an open gate to his mind. There is no content filter for him. Everything goes. Good ideas, bad ideas. He can't differentiate between them. It is this naivete to live life with. And so Solomon says, I look among the naive, among the oblivious fools, and I saw a young man who had no sense. That one is a weird one. That's the Hebrew word for heart. So he says, I look among the naive and I see a man who lacked heart. Heart, that idea in the Hebrew is not an organ and it's certainly not all about like lovey-dovey emotions like it is for us today. The heart is the epicenter of who you are to the Hebrews. It is this idea that it's the connection, the intersection of your thoughts, your will, your emotion, the things that drive you. It is functionally the control center of your life. And so Solomon isn't saying that he looked among the naive and he saw a young man who didn't have a control center. He's saying he looked among the naive and he saw a young man who didn't have anything operating the control center. There was no governance to his heart. Nothing was leading him one way or the other. And this young man, as he is walking aimlessly, he comes upon a woman with crafty intent. That word crafty is also used for hunters in the Old Testament. She has hidden intent like a hunter would hide their intent. Being tucked away, hidden in the bushes, avoiding being seen what is really there, the danger that is really present. And so check this out. Because he lives his life with zero conviction, because he has no governance of his life, nothing that is ruling his heart, because of that void, her intentions 
will enter into that void and begin making decisions on his behalf. It is her crafty intent that will ultimately lead to the outcome of this situation because he had no intentions. He sat there aimlessly without anything ruling his heart. If you look at this in your notes, I I, I have another do for you. Do allow God's word and spirit to govern the control center of your life. Do allow God's word and spirit to govern the control center of your life. What I will encourage you with is this. You don't come up with godly conviction in the moment that you're tempted. If it is not formed in you over time, if it is not a day in, day out conviction, we are fools to expect to be faced with temptation and all of a sudden to muster godly conviction. You have to live your life with godly conviction on a regular basis, allowing his spirit, allowing his word to govern the way you live your life, the way you think about the world, the way you feel, the way you operate with other people, all of those things that are involved in the heart reality. You have to let that be governed constantly, not just in a moment of temptation. And way too many of us are kind of flying by the seat of our pants like this young man all the way up until it's way too late to muster that conviction, to come up with the biblical ethic related to sexuality. It's too late at this point. She set the trap. And so going forward, you're gonna see a tale as old as time as this man is seduced uh, into making a grave mistake. And what's the good news for us is that sexual temptation's game has not changed. In the thousands of years it's been since Solomon wrote this, its game is exactly the same today as it was back then. The bad news for us is it is really effective. It is really powerful. And so we have to know what the game is so that we can avoid falling for that trap. Uh, Here's what happens next. Or actually, here's a don't for you first. Don't fall for the same old tricks. Because what you're gonna see, I think you're gonna recognize really quickly First thing she does in verse 13, she took a hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, first thing, surprise. She comes out of nowhere. This is the the first piece to the puzzle here of, of this temptation is this bam, out of nowhere, surprise. She comes out of nowhere. She kisses him on the lips like, boom. And like, obviously he wasn't expecting it. He's taken aback. He's surprised and, and kind of lost at it. And this is how it still works today, right? It's a, it's a pop-up that happens on your computer. You're scrolling aimlessly on social media and all of a sudden it's a post from somebody you don't even follow. It's somehow a, a rabbit trail that you get on on the internet that leads you down this path you didn't expect to go. It's, it's a sudden advance from somebody that you didn't expect. The first step is always surprise because with sexual temptation, if you give enough time to think about it, and you cool down and you think about it rationally, it's never worth it. And so if sexual temptation were to give you the time to think about it, to process it, you'd come to a totally different conclusion. Its first step is always to surprise you, come out of nowhere. And so she comes with surprise first. Next thing that she does is she says to him, today I I, I fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. Kind of a weird statement that she's saying here, I have fulfilled my vows. 
And the great irony is you're sitting there thinking like in no way, shape or form is what she is proposing fulfilling her vows. This is the exact opposite of what she would have said at her wedding ceremony, like the opposite completely. She's actually not talking about her wedding vows. What she's talking about is a fellowship offering. A fellowship offering is the only offering in all of the Old Testament where the worshiper and God share a meal. It served three purposes. There was a thanksgiving offering, there was a free will offering, and there was a votive offering. The thanksgiving offering was God, thank you so much for blessing my life, and God would get a portion of the animal and the worshiper would get a portion of the animal. The free will sacrifice was God, I'm just overwhelmed to be in a relationship with you. God would get part of the animal, worshiper would get part of the animal. And then the votive sacrifice is what she's talking about. It's when you would make a vow or a promise to God. And you would say, God, I'm gonna give this up. I'm gonna do this for you. And then when that vow became complete, you would bring a sacrifice to God. He would get part of it. You would get part of it. And the rules were you had to eat it that day or the next day. Otherwise, it had to get burned up. And so the whole thing was this had nothing to do with sin. It wasn't a sin sacrifice. It was purely worship. And the idea was that you actually got to be, you got to be blessed in the process by getting to share a meal with God. And it kind of positively reinforced the things that you were bringing that sacrifice for in the first place. And so what she's saying is I have fulfilled my votive sacrifice with God. I have fulfilled a vow with him and now she's actually inviting him in to share this meal with her. So what this trick does is she's rationalizing. Okay, that's the next one there in your notes. She's rationalizing. And what this trick does that's so crafty and sneaky is it kind of eases the conscience. Because as she says, hey, I, I went and I fulfilled my fellowship offering today for a vow, this guy's gotta be thinking, she's pretty spiritual. She's a pretty spiritual lady. She had a vow with God and she fulfilled it. Like that's pretty spiritual. And so he's gotta be thinking, how bad could this be what she's gonna ask me to do? Because she, she's connected to God. She's in a relationship with him. So it kind of eases his conscience. Anything within him that was like, run, this is bad, is like, no, wait, wait, wait. She's like a pretty spiritual lady. She must know something maybe that I don't know. She's clearly cool with it. And all of a sudden there's this rationalization. And this happens, this is sexual temptation's next step. It always starts with surprise and then a smooth ease of the conscience. Hey, it's okay. Like maybe you've never tried this before, but it's actually not that big of a deal. It doesn't really affect you, whatever. It's these lies to begin to rationalize for you. So she says, today I've fulfilled my vows. And he's starting to think, okay, maybe she's a little spiritual. Uh, but here's the thing. If his heart was being governed by God's word, he would know this. God's word says this about fellowship offerings and the meals in Leviticus 7. It says, but if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. What God's word says is if you're unclean when you go to eat that meal, then you, don't, you no longer belong to the people of God. And she's saying, let's go break the law together and then eat this meal. And if God's word was governing his heart, he would be like, that's unclean. I, I can't do that and then eat this meal. That's in clear violation of the way that God's laid it out. It's not you scratch God's back, he scratches yours. This is functionally like if you've ever tried anything like Lent or you've ever made a promise to God, it's functionally like getting to the end of it and then saying like, okay, I'm gonna go get plastered in Vegas for a weekend now. 
I earned my peace. I did my peace for God and now I'm gonna go do my thing. And it's like, that is not how it works at all. Like, it's not like you give God a little bit and then he gives you a free pass to go do whatever you want. His requirements never end. His expectation of holiness isn't seasonal, it's undying. And so to live the good life, we've gotta pursue holiness in season and out of season. And so if God's word was governing his heart, he would have caught that. But instead, it's rationalized. His conscience is eased. The next thing she does, she says this, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I have found you. This is flattery. That's the next one there in your notes is flattery. She comes out, she surprises him, catches him off guard. Then she rationalizes, hey, it's not that big of a deal. And then she says, and this is so, this is such a great coincidence because I was actually looking specifically for you. She wasn't looking for him. She was looking for whoever was walking down that road. It didn't matter who it was. But all of a sudden, there's a little kind of scratch to the ego, right? This is the kind of dangerous thing about sexual temptation is it fills this void to want to be wanted, to want to be desired by someone. And in that moment of sexual temptation, whatever that thing is that is facing you will do such a good job of making you feel wanted for a moment, of making you feel desired, of making you feel important. But our campus pastors talked about this idea of flattery earlier in this series when they were talking about words that are hurtful. And they, they identified flattery as just giving someone lip service to get what you really wanted in the end. And that's what this lady's doing. She doesn't care about him. She's not, she's not attracted to him. She wasn't looking specifically for him. But all of a sudden, there's that little kind of scratch to the ego that's like, oh, she wants me. Like there's something special about me. So it's not just that it's surprising and then it's like, oh, maybe it's not that bad, but then it's, oh, I'm desired on top of it. Next thing she says, she says, I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. What she offers him next is sensuality. That's there in your notes as well, sensuality. It's enticing to all five of the senses. And this is why you have to be so on guard, so avoidant of sexual temptation is because it's enjoyable. That is hands down the most dangerous thing about sexual temptation is that it's enjoyable. That's gotta like, it's poison nonetheless, but it's poison that tastes good on the way down. And what she offers him is this experience that's gonna engage all five of the senses. It's lavish, it's luxury, it's exclusive. And ironically, her bed is open to anyone. But that is the lie that she presents to him. Lavish, luxury, exclusive opportunity. And a great commentator that I read on this verse said, with all five senses enticed, he follows her lacking the sixth sense that wisdom provides, which is discernment. And I thought that was such a great way to sum it up because there was nothing governing his life. His five senses enticed with the idea of a pleasurable experience following 
her. The next thing that she says as she finishes off this round of lies is in verse 19, she says, my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. The last thing that she promises him is secrecy. Hey, guess what? You and I are the only ones who are gonna know about this. Nobody else is gonna know. So it's this final last ditch ease to the conscience. Anything within him that was thinking about the ramifications of this, the implications that this would have for his life. It's like, guess what? This one's consequence is free because nobody's gonna know. Nobody's gonna have any idea about this. My husband's gone, it's just gonna be you and me. But again, if God's word was the thing governing his heart, governing his life, he would know this from Psalm 90. It says this, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Nothing that you think is hidden is hidden. And so with these five lies back to back, back to back to back, and with all five senses enticed, he follows her. He follows her into this trap. And Solomon Solomon tries to make so clear to his son the cost of this. There is, you'll see from this really sensual language, there is a really clear twist, a really clear turn that Solomon makes here in the rest of the chapter. In verse 21, it says this, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me, pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray to her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. An encouragement for you, don't lose your life. Don't lose your life. This is what Solomon lays out to his son as the ultimate cost for sexuality outside of God's design. It is the loss of your life. And that word life there is actually the same word that is used for the breath of life that God gives to humanity in Genesis. It is the idea of your soul, the very thing that gives you life, that gives you function day in and day out. And so whether or not he dies that day is of no matter because there has been an impact on his soul immediately. There is a soulish level death that is brought by sexuality outside of God's design. It's why Paul warns in the New Testament that whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. All other sins are outside of the body, but it's those that sin sexually that sin against their own body. Because what scripture is telling us is there is an impact. There is an impact that cuts deeply into the frame of who you are. Don't lose your life. Count the cost. The cost is more than you can pay. It's more than it is ever worth paying. But this isn't the only lady calling for your attention. If you flip to literally the next chapter, as Solomon moves on, this is what he says in chapter eight. He says, does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, to you, O people, I call out. 
I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. What Solomon lays out is there are two women calling for his son's attention. I I want you to understand this. He has been using both of these ladies as a personification, okay? He's not vilifying women, So if you're a lady here and you're thinking, man, Solomon was super unfair to ladies. He is writing to his son. So what he is trying to convey to his son is that you pursue woman, you pursue wisdom like you would a woman. It's the same kind of pursuit. You hunt after wisdom. And in just the same way, this promiscuity, this sexuality outside of God's design, it is also vying for your attention. And so if you understand that both women are calling, scary to think about, but also encouraging to know that wisdom is calling for your attention too. So I have a do for you. Do listen to wisdom's call. Notice that she is calling to the simple. She is calling to those without a filter, without a guard, whose minds are wide open. And so if you feel like, man, Jackson, I don't know that I would identify myself as wise. I don't know that I would say that I live according to biblical wisdom. Then if I could encourage you, wisdom is calling for your attention. It's just a matter of you choosing to pursue her, of you choosing to chase after wisdom. Are you willing to sacrifice for it? Are you willing to hunt after it? Because otherwise, if you live your life with no conviction, there is another calling and you will find yourself succumb to her. And so in pursuing wisdom, as I kind of looked across scripture, here's some wisdom to do's for you. If you wanna grow in your pursuit of wisdom as it comes to sexuality and temptation, here's a list of to do's. The first one is guard your heart, guard your heart. This is what Proverbs says just earlier in Proverbs chapter four, verse 23. It says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. See, if the heart is the control center of who you are, then you need to be so proactive about what is allowed in. You need to be so intentional about what comes in. Because ultimately, whatever is coming into your heart is going to determine who you are. It's going to determine the kind of person you end up becoming. And it's why, it's why we have to be so incredibly serious about the epidemic of pornography that is running through the church. You have to be so serious about what you are allowing in to your heart. Because what Jesus says is Jesus says that pornography is already having the same effect on your soul, that same impact on your soul that adultery does, that any other sexuality outside of God's design has. This is what Jesus says. Look at this in Matthew 5, 28. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying that those same costs, that same soulish implication is on the table. Take this seriously. And again, Barna ratting us out. This is what Barna has to say, that 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. 68%. 
don't take wisdom seriously in the area of sexuality. It says that 76% of Christian young adults, men or women, those are 18 to 24 year olds, actively search for porn. Barna also has found that your marriage is 300% more likely for infidelity when one person in the marriage views porn actively. See, our culture is trying to influence us to begin to think that maybe pornography is neutral. Maybe it's helpful. Really clearly, the science says that it is deeply impactful. It's impactful. This is from a study called Your Brain on Porn. Science says that porn, pornography changes your brain and how you view the opposite sex. It changes your brain in a numbing to sexual pleasure and sexual bonding to a partner. It negatively affects your relationships with children, family, friends, and spouse. It is not beneficial for you. We need to get proactive about what we're letting into our heart because it is shaping us. It is influencing us. It is impacting our own souls right now. It's not net neutral. Be serious about the impact. Be serious about the effect. And the really sad statistic is that only 7% of churches have a program to help people with pornographic addiction. The really encouraging part of that, we're one of those churches. But can I ask a question to the fellows in the room? If 68% of us statistically have a problem with pornography, then why are there only 32 men in that program at a church of 2,500? Math doesn't add up. What the math shows is one, you're not alone. For everything within you that feels like you are alone and you're the only one and you walk with a guilt and a shame that you feel like no one could understand, the numbers actually say that most people understand, that most people are carrying that same shame. But the question that I would ask you is why are you choosing to continue to walk alone? Why not get serious about biblical wisdom in your life? Why not get serious about taking, guarding your heart seriously, no longer allowing these images to influence the outcomes of who you are? That program is called Pure Life. And really simply, if you wanna hop in, text PURE to 64567. It'll give you a link that'll get you to the process on how to sign up. Text the word PURE to 64567. If you don't wanna see anybody on your phone, if you don't want anybody to see you on your phone, just take a good note, like I said, something really cool. Pure to 64567. It's about time we got serious about this. We got serious about being proactive and guarding our hearts. And ladies, I know that 33%, uh, the, the numbers say 33% of women under 30 view porn at least once a month. So I know it's not exclusively men in the room who are dealing with this problem. And what do I want to encourage you with is this is actually the end of this series, but the beginning of a five-week series on sexuality and what the Bible has to say about it. Tonight, we talk about what Proverbs has to say about sexuality, but we're launching into a series called Handle with Care unloading the delicate power of sexuality. And that starts next week. So if you're looking for more resources, if you're looking for more help on what the Bible has to say about this, 
Literally, come back for the next five weeks because it's gonna be so good. The next thing in wisdom to-dos is count the cost, count the cost. Really simple, uh, this was just a great little tip that I read from uh, one of the people I was reading in a commentary. They just said, just sit down for a second and write out what you would lose at marital infidelity, what you would lose at sexual immorality. What would it cost you? Just make a list. Make a list in the notes app on your phone this week so that when you're tempted, you have a really quick list just to be able to see, oh, that would be the cost of making that decision. Because with the surprise and the lies, it's really easy to forget. It's really easy to stop thinking straight in that moment. And so it's important, just have that list on hand. What would it cost you? Next thing, we gotta fly through these. The next thing is flee, flee. This is just get out of there, run. Way too many of us, when it comes to temptation, specifically sexual temptation, but all kinds of temptation, we just kind of try to hunker down and be holy. We're like, nope, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. All the while you sit in front of the cookie, right? I'm not gonna eat the cookie. I'm not gonna eat the cookie. You're gonna eat the cookie, right? Get up and leave the table. What are you doing? Get up and leave. My, my son, he loves sticking his hand in the dog's water bowl and then licking his hand, okay? It's his favorite thing to do right now. Horrifying um, and disgusting to me. Um, so he's gotten really good though at no, right? So I say, Hezzy, no, don't do that. And he knows, he shakes his head, which seems a little defiant, but I like to think that he's just tracking with me. Uh, so he's sitting there at the dog bowl, shaking his head no, but he doesn't leave the dog bowl, right? So shaking his head no, what does he do? Stick his hand right into the water, shaking his head no, because he doesn't get up and leave. You just gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta run, you gotta flee. The Bible says this, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Get up and run. Joseph did it in the Old Testament. It has been modeled time and time again. It's not a time to hunker down. It's a time to move. The next thing, be a pirate for Jesus. Be a pirate for Jesus. I bet you did not expect to write that down when you walked into church today. Jesus asked this great question in Matthew 5, and he basically presents us with this idea of how willing we are, how willing we are in our battle with sin. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. So what I imagine is the followers of Jesus with their eyes gouged out and their hands cut off have a hook and an eye patch, pirates for Jesus. You're tracking now. Um, the question that Jesus is asking though is how willing are you to get uncomfortable in your fight with sin? How willing are you to begin cutting things out of your life? Can I tell you wise people are so comfortable with limitation? We have this understanding that maybe wise people are just think they're invincible and they just walk around like nothing can touch them. Wise people are so content to say, oh, I just can't watch those kind of movies. I just can't listen to that artist. Oh, I, I just, I don't watch that show. Oh, I, I don't have unrestricted internet access on my phone so I can't look that up. 
Oh, I don't have that app on my phone. Oh, I deleted my social media. What are you willing to cut out? Maybe some of you need to move to a dumb phone. Stat. What are you willing to lose for the sake of holiness? Don't cut your hand off though, okay? That was proverbial. But what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to give up so that you can begin moving into righteousness, moving into wisdom? Last thing is this, repent, repent. This is not a message of shame. This is not a message of guilt, of condemnation. What Jesus does best, what Jesus' business is, is taking broken and sinful people and redeeming them into saints. That's his business. That's what he's all about. And he's a pro at it. All you have to do tonight if you have failed, if you have fallen in any way in sexuality outside of God's design, is repent. That is to take your current course of action, to drop it, and in faith, turn towards Jesus, turn towards his way, and cling to him, placing your faith in him, choosing his way as better, choosing his way as good over the way you had previously been going. So whether you've never repented before, you've never given your life to God, you have that opportunity before you tonight. Or if man, this is the 30th, 50th, 300th time, you have another opportunity to come back to the feet of Jesus and to say, I went the wrong direction. I cling to you, I cling to your way because it is his way that brings life. It is his way that brings the good life. This is what Proverbs says right at the end of the book. It says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Man, I would encourage you tonight, if you feel the weight of guilt for stepping outside of God's design and sexuality, would you repent? Would you turn course? Because he will be faithful to forgive you you will find mercy. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. And we wanna choose your will, your way, time and time again, because we trust that your way is better. So Lord, in the way that we talk to our kids, in the way that we're faced with temptation, in the way that we pursue wisdom in our lives, Lord, would we honor and glorify you in the way that we put you first and we trust you as supreme. And Lord, if there's anyone in here tonight who is feeling the weight, feeling the guilt of their sin, man, I would, I would encourage you, would you just say this simple prayer? If you're ready to let go and to turn towards Jesus, would you A, admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior? Would you B, believe that Jesus is the only savior available? And would you C, choose, choose his way over your own? And just like that, you will find forgiveness and mercy, redemption from your sin. And Lord, there might be others of us tonight that are praying that for what feels like the thousandth time. And Lord, would you be faithful to remind us of your mercy this week? And Lord, would you give us the strength and the resilience to pursue your will, your way over our own time and time again? We love you. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.